welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. We're your hosts, Helga Halberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sitarani Palomar. We have a fun show coming up in this hour that will dive deep into my childhood in Germany, where this practice of preserving food and making it extra yummy all while increasing the nutritional value is part of the culture. Ha, culture. We're talking in depth about eating sugar today, the culture of fermentation. Today on Inorganic Conversation. I am really <laughs> excited about this topic because, from, I mean, I'm a chef and fermentation, it's an ancient tradition, but it's also gotten so popular again. I think there was kind of a lull period. And for me, having our guest on today, who is the foremost authority on fermentation, is I'm kind of like in a little bit of a celebrity buzz right now. I can't <laughs> wait to hear what he has to tell us about how he's marrying the ancient traditions and some new wisdom that's getting people really excited about fermenting. Yeah, and this weekend... You, obviously. Look at me. I'm like... <laughs> Child, I'm so excited. You are fermenting right now. I have to admit, I've never seen that someone that excited about fermentation, about, but yes. I'm really that <laughs> makes me excited about. And you know, I, you know, I've I know I've known about pickles and sauerkraut and beer, of course. Um, and you know, as far as the fermentation process, but I'm really interested to hear about just all the ways that this works. In our, in our lives every day. And it's actually not just food, as we will find yeah, out. Yeah. Our author is coming up, the foremost authority on fermentation. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll take a quick break, but stay tuned for our first interview about eating sugar, the culture of fermentation, that and more, when we come back right after the break. Back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helber. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Today's topic is eating sugar, the culture of fermentation. How <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> eating sugar. Um, for hundreds of years, actually for thousands of years, the art of fermentation has been practiced in many cultures around the world, from Germany and their famous sauerkraut, or yes, Mark, beer, to yogurt in the Mediterranean to kvass in Russia. Culturing food is an ingenious practice because it preserves the food and at the same time makes it more nutritious. And there are a number of additional benefits and things to share about the culture of culturing. In this hour, we will hear it from the culturer's mouth, so to say, from the gentleman who, for many, is the foremost authority on fermentation in the United States and perhaps around the world. With us now, calling in from Cannon County, Tennessee, is Sander Katz, author and food activist. Sander, so fantastic to have you with us. Thanks for being it's on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Sander, we know that fermentation 
um, a curse in, in everything from pickles to beer to, to non-foods. But what exactly is it? Can you describe what is happening um, when something ferments? Um, sure. Broadly speaking, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, so it's bacteria, uh, it's yeast, in certain cases it's, uh, it's molds, um, and these microorganisms um, are digesting and transforming our food. And, and it's mostly sugar. I was right with the title, right? Eating sugar? Well, um, I mean, lo lots of different um, um, uh, uh, nutrients uh, can ferment. So, yes, in the production of alcohol, it's always sugar. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, proteins can ferment. Um, uh, uh, complex carbohydrates can ferment. Um, so, um, so, you know, really lots of different nutrients can be transformed by the action of microorganisms. There are many different um, types of ferments. That, that people love to eat. Yes. And drink. <laughs> yes, drink. <laughs> Sandor, you have piqued so many people's interest in fermentation. I was telling my co-host earlier that on my very first day of culinary school, we all picked up your first book on fermentation, Wild Fermentation, like it was the Fermentation Bible, because it really is. And I'm curious if you can tell us where your interest in fermentation really peaked and what inspired you to make a career out of it. Well, um, you know, I, I mean, I did just sort of fall into that. Um, but, you know, well, I, I, I was raised in New York City, and one of my very favorite foods as a small child uh, was sour pickles, uh, what many people might know as uh, kosher dills. And these are um, um, brined, fermented pickles. Um, and I just always was drawn to the flavor before I had ever learned the word fermentation or tried fermenting anything. I just was drawn to this flavor of lactic acid produced by fermentation. Um, then when I was in my 20s and experimenting with different dietary ideas, I started to um, you know, learn that there are some digestive benefits to, um, to foods containing live bacterial cultures. Um, uh, then when I moved uh, from New York City to rural Tennessee and got involved in keeping a garden, um, I was faced with um, a lot of cabbage and a lot of radish, um, all ready at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, faced with this practical problem um, of an overabundance of vegetables, yes. um, I looked in the joy of cooking to learn how to make sauerkraut. When life gives you lots of cabbage, make sauerkraut. <laughs> um, so I learned how to make a, a sauerkraut, and then that sort of led me into a little bit of a personal obsession where, um, you know, I was reading everything that I could find about fermented foods, experimenting, uh, my kitchen turned into a, a mad laboratory, um, and as a result of my interest in fermentation, I got invited by some friends to teach a workshop uh, uh, in fermenting vegetables, um, and that became a kind of an, an end, that was in 1999, and I was doing that um, um, every year, and I, I really learned that there's a huge cultural fear where many people are terrified of aging food outside of refrigeration yes. because we associate bacteria with you know sickness, um, uh, decay, and uh, and death. So there's just a huge cultural fear. People worry. Um, you know, how do I know that I'll get the right organism uh, growing? How do I know that I'm not going to accidentally um, uh, you know make somebody sick, kill somebody? So there's just a huge 
huge fear that's developing, and I just sort of fell into the role of, um, you know, demystifying fermentation and, um, you know, trying to empower people, um, you know, with information to uh, help them realize that this is, you know, easy um, and safe. Like, there are very few foods that exist that are safer than fermented vegetables. You know, according to the U.S. government, there has never been a single case of food poisoning reported um, in the United States from fermented vegetables, and there are not many foods that you could say that about, certainly not raw vegetables. We're speaking with Sandor Katz, the author of The Art of Fermentation, who is joining us from Cannon County, Tennessee, today here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helber. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And Sandra, you, you were um, talking about the fear of bacteria. Do you, um, in your research about fermentation, have found that this is a new fear in this society or, um, you know, fermentation is hundreds if not thousands of years old uh, practice? Has this always been part around the, the distance to people to fermentation or is this really in our current generation? Um, I, I think that it's our current generation. I mean, you know, ferments are all ancient. Like pretty much all of the ferments that people love to eat and drink predate recorded history. We don't know anything about the origins of any of them. The earliest written documents in different uh, 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 languages refer to ferments that already existed in those uh, regions of the world. And in, in fact, some of the ancient documents actually contain recipes, such as the Sumerian, um, uh, the, the Sumerian tablets contain recipes for, for bread and for beer. Um, but but I, I think the, the reason why people have projected fear, uh, you know, onto fermentation and aging food, you know, is the fact that um, in the second half of the 19th century, with the emergence of microbiology, the first bacteria that were, um, you know, identified and became known were pathogenic bacteria. Sure. Um, and even though the vast majority of bacteria, um, you know, either are completely benign for us, you know, or else they are extremely beneficial for us. Um, you know, people came to have this generalized idea uh, that bacteria are dangerous, uh, that our lives would be better if we could kill all the bacteria. And, and in fact, we've all been indoctrinated into a project that I would call the war on bacteria. And it's this idea that, you know, we should exterminate all the bacteria. In fact, this is, this is a totally misguided notion, and we could not live in this world without bacteria. Bacteria enable us to function, to reproduce, to get nutrients out of our food, um, um, and they regulate lots of other um, um, processes in our body, and it's, we're just beginning to scratch the surface and understand how important bacteria are in our lives. Uh, Sandor, you started talking about how historically we did. We don't know when this pra this practice started, but we do know that it's been used in many cultures around the around the world. Can you tell us some of the other places where you found that historically uh, fermentation was used in order to preserve food or to um, just get more nutrition from their food? Well, I have not been able to find um, anywhere. 
where fermentation has not been used. Okay. I, mean, I do not know of <laughs> every culinary on this earth, but I have looked really hard for a counterexample. <laughs> mm. And uh, as far as I can tell, you know, because there is a certain inevitability to microbial changes to our food, um, you know, any people that seek to store food from today for the future, you know, have to, um, uh, you know, have some kind of a practical approach for dealing with the microorganisms that are present on our food, and, and, and various types of fermentations are found all around the world. One region of the world that has, you know, particularly, um, uh, you know, rich and varied fermentation traditions um, is China. Um, you know, yes. fermentations that have, uh, that have emanated out from China um, are enjoyed all around the world. And, and in fact, most of the uh, historical theories about the origins of, of sauerkraut in, in Europe um, uh, suggest that, that the idea of it you know, came uh, from China and it was spread uh, you know, through Central Asia and Europe are you uh, saying by the that, nomadic people of Central Asia. Are you saying that sauerkraut is not an originally German idea? <laughs> well, I... <laughs> certainly a, a, a German word and a, <laughs> of, uh, you know, a very important uh, um, food storage principle um, you know, that is practiced you know, certainly all across the Eurasian landmass. Yes, wow. and um, for sure. example with kimchi, of course, mm -hmm. um, there's huge uh, Japanese or uh, Asian influences. I always thought it went from Germany to, to yeah, you know, Asia. It, it, that, that's it, okay. It, we'll, it, we won't critical. dive into that any further. It seems like the <laughs> show has always been based that way, that everything started in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting to talk about the parallels that were happening across the world as people were discovering that they could preserve their food with this process. Sander, can you tell us, other than, than preserving food for longer, I know you touched a little bit on what the benefits are, but what roles have fermented foods played in traditional cultures? Um fermentation can enhance foods in many different ways. I mean, I, you know, I would say pr preservation has been a very important, um, um, you know, incentive for, for people to develop uh, techniques for fermentation. Um, you know, alcohol um, it has, has been another huge incentive, and it's widely agreed that um, the production of alcoholic beverages is the most ancient form of fermentation and the most widespread form of fermentation. Um, fermentation is also used to make food more digestible. Um, I think a really great, uh, vivid illustration of this um, is the soybean. Um, you know, soybeans are considered to be the plant source food with the most concentrated protein, but our human digestive systems are not capable of extracting the, soy, the, the, the protein from a soybean, um, you know, unless the soybean has been processed in some way, and usually that processing is fermentation. So soy sauce, miso, tempeh, natto. These are varied examples of fermented soybeans. What they all have in common is that the, the, the soy protein is pre-digested during the fermentation into amino acids, which, uh, which are the building blocks of proteins, and as a result, they become much more bioavailable in our bodies. So this, health, um, and then there are the live cultures themselves. Like this is what I would consider to be the most profound nutritional benefit of fermentation, particularly for us in our time. So the the lactic acid bacteria, in particular, can really help to replenish and diversify bacterial populations in our guts. 
Um, and the reason why we need this is because there are all of these chemicals that we are exposed to on a daily basis that, that, that are used precisely to kill bacteria. So as a result of you know, antibiotics, antibacterial cleansing products, chlorinated water, you know, all of these chemicals that people just were never exposed to until the last, uh, until the last century. Yes. Um, uh, the accumulation of these chemicals is, is, is resulting in a more or less continuous attack on our gut bacteria. And so for us in our time, more than for people ever in the past, you know, we need to think about consciously replenishing and diversifying these populations. Um, and fermented foods are a great way of doing that. So health and preservation and enjoyment in the Absolutely. form of beer uh, and chocolate. <laughs> fuel efficiency. Um, and I think the tempeh illustrates this really well. To cook soybeans until they're soft enough to eat would take about six hours of cooking. To make tempeh, you only need to cook the beans for about a half an hour before you make the tempeh. And then you just need to um, uh, briefly cook the tempeh after it has been prepared. So you take a food that would otherwise require six hours of cooking and make it so that it only needs about 45 minutes of cooking. Um, and that, that's a dramatic benefit. And that's because they had gone through a fermentation process. Exactly. The, the, the fermentation pre-digests it in such a way that it does not require so much cooking. Which you talk about in your book, which we're just diving into. Yes, um, <laughs> and we, we will dive into all that. What do we need to start the fermentation process? Is that something that naturally occurs? And are there some things that simply cannot be fermented? We are speaking with Sander Katz, the author of The Art of Fermentation, a brand new book, based on his huge success, uh, The Wild Fermentation, which is really the textbook on fermentation in the world, who's joining us today from Cannon County, Tennessee. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark McKay. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And this is, of course, An Organic Conversation, and we'll take a quick break, but we'll be back with so much more. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Today's topic is eating sugar, among many other things. The culture of fermentation for thousands of years, the art of fermentation has been practiced 
in most cultures, if not all cultures around the world. And we're speaking today with Sandra Katz, author of The Art of Fermentation, a brand new book based on his success of uh, wild fermentation a few years ago, which is revered as really the textbook of fermentation in this country and around the world. Before we dive back into that interview, and Sandra is joining us today from Cannon County, Tennessee, live here on the show. Here's the weekly update of what's going on in the world of produce with our very own produce expert, Mark Mokehi. What's in season? Yes, and today I've got Earl Herrick, uh, the, the familiar voice of the market, Earl from Earl's Organic in San Francisco, on the line with us. Hey, Earl, what's going on today? Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning. Good morning, Earl. Hey, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I want you all to prepare yourself. Get ready for corn because it's going to come on gangbusters here as we start marching through June, getting ready for that 4th of July. We're, we're headed for a great crop this year with a perfect spring, a little bit of rain here and there, and great winds that come and dry everything out. Because um, this is really the time. We're just entering it now. Uh, out here in the West Coast and in Florida, you get, the, when I say the West Coast, I really mean the desert, you get corn pretty much in the spring that's when it peaks out of the desert area in florida with that warm weather but as the warm weather continues the days get longer and the and the days are warmer longer we're getting production corn has grown i think but correct me if i'm wrong here mark i think it's grown in in every state of the union it's grown in every continent except for antarctica well, there you go. Wow. That's the wow. kind of production we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not getting our corn from Antarctica or, or, or from a lot of other places. And Earl, when you, when you talk about um, a fantastic season this year, what, what varieties will we see? Or is it basically all yellow corn? What's the story there? Good question. Uh, you, know, it, you know, this has been the, one of the great developments in the last 30 years. Uh, so many great varieties have come out. But right now, you have a white and a bicolor and a, and a yellow. And years ago, it was just yellow, and it was starchy. You had to eat it. You know that old story, uh, you, you start the water boiling before you pick the corn. Uh, you want to eat it that fast. Where in the last 30 years, hybrids have been developed, and they've developed a super sweet corn, which is stays sweet a long, long time, and it's much, much easier to pick really good corn. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds Wonderful. delicious. I can't wait. Uh, corn yeah. season. Corn on yeah, the cup. It's actually one of my favorite times because you can drive out locally when, it, when that time happens. And we're talking about July and August where it's all over. And you drive out in the countryside, you, there's corn, uh, you know, big displays. You stop by 10 for 10 ears for a uh, dollar, and, and this is the greatest time. I have a, one of my greatest memories is with my brother-in-law in, uh, in upper, uh, upper Michigan in August, uh, going out and uh, uh, looking for beer, but we ended up with corn. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just everywhere. <laughs> well, Earl, I'm not going to send you to the store the next time we're getting, we're getting some beer for the game, but um, I will send you if we're doing a barbecue. So, Watch out where you send a produce man to get his stuff. That's right. That's right. So, well, thank so, you, Earl. Thanks, thanks Earl. Thanks so much, Earl. Of course. Thanks. Okay, great bye-bye. update. And so if you are going out to get corn, you're, you're never going to find organic corn 10 years for a dollar because of uh, just the— you know, just the cost of growing things 
But if you are out looking for corn, right now people want corn. It's June, and yes, if you're in the Midwest or the East Coast, you're not getting fresh local corn. But if you are looking for our organic corn, it's coming from California right now. And as Earl was saying, it's, it's really good, and it's going to be a really good season that will get you to your local season. And here in California, yes, it's fresh. You're getting it from uh, not too far away. So what you want to make sure you do when you pick your corn is you want to make sure that it's really nice green, bright green husks and and moist, and the silk should be uh, stiff and moist. And when you get your when you're in between taking your corn home, like if you're going to go to the store and buy it, it's actually good. Even though they're super sweet varieties, like Earl was talking about, it's still good to keep it cool because it still will convert its sugar to starch over time. And so, if you want to maintain that that good sweet flavor, then you want to make sure you take it, you, you keep it cool until you eat it. And I, and I would rec- still recommend eating it within like two or three days. And you don't have to peel that husk back. You can just run your thumb along the the outside of the husk and you'll feel the kernels inside so you'll feel if it's missing kernels or not missing kernels and that's one really great uh, way to not make a mess in the produce department if you still feel like you need to do it then go ahead you know it's your your corn you get to buy it and a couple last things you know we know we've all been we all talk about grilling corn we all talk about boiling corn but one thing you might want to try especially if you get like a cool summer evening sometime is baking corn and all you have to do is put it in the oven at 375 degrees and you put the corn the corn ears in a single layer and and then you just put them on an oven rack and you bake for about 25 minutes until it's tender and it'll taste just like if it was boiled or or grilled but it gives you that 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 nice warming feeling and so it's something new for you to try Lastly, why you might want to buy organic corn is because corn uses a lot of nitrogen fertilizer, and that's very polluting to local waterways. And, and in organic production, we, we don't use nitrogen fertilizers. And, and also because this is the year that sweet corn will be genetically modified, and it doesn't have to be labeled. So if you want to make sure that your corn is not genetically modified, then you should go out and buy organic corn. And that's what's in season. That's so great, Mark. Thank you for that weekly update of what's going on in the world of produce. Baking corn makes it tender. Return to tender. How about... How about um, soaking it? If you see, like, after three days, your corn is kind of losing a little bit its perkiness, is that is that something that can be done, putting it in ice water for 10 minutes? Well, it kind of depends on the, uh, the, the how you're asking the question. Is One, if you're trying to bring corn back like you could, like a head of greens or a head of broccoli or something to firm it back up. Yes. Um, you, I have never seen corn do that when by doing that. Um, and also, if it's starting to change its uh, sugar to starch at that point in time, you're not going to get that yeah, sugar back. So I would say mostly just eat it quickly as opposed <laughs> to trying to bring it back if you made that mistake. And then, Sita, we talk, he heard about grilling and baking corn. I love it fresh off the cob. Is that Me nutritionally... Too. Is that a problem? Is that is, no, is, is corn supposed That's to be great. cooked? I don't think it's supposed to be cooked at all. I mean, raw fruits and vegetables have lots of live active enzymes in them, and it's also really sweet. You're preserving those sugars more. I have a recipe for fresh corn salsa that I think we have on the website, but if we don't, I'll double check. It's yes. a raw corn salsa. Please, and I'm, I will. We will find out if we can also ferment corn. And that brings us right back to today's topic. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helder. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And with us still is Sander Katz, the author of The Art of Fermentation, who's joining us from Cannon County, Tennessee. His new book, 
that is diving deep, deep into the world of fermentation. Today's topic is eating sugar, the culture of fermentation here on Inorganic Conversation. Sander, are you still with us? I am still here. Thank you. Your new book, let's talk about that. The Art of Fermentations follows on the heels of your really super successful book, Wild Fermentation, that came out a few years ago, which is considered by many to be the textbook on fermenting. What inspired this new book? How is it different or what does it address that you have learned since? Well, you know, I mean, any, any book really is, is a time capsule. Um, I began my explorations of fermentation in 1993. I wrote Wild Fermentation in 2001 and 2002. It was published in 2003. Um, since it came out, um, you know, it, the, the publication of the book, you know, opened all sorts of doors. Um, I have taught hundreds of workshops, um, you know, all around North America and also in, um, in Europe and Australia um, and, uh, and Indonesia now. And, and just, just the you know, the opportunity to talk to so many people about fermentation, to hear the stories that people have of what their grandparents' practices were, mm. um, the ferments of the old country that they left behind, um, uh, you know, hearing stories from travel adventurers, uh, hearing the stories of other experimentalists like myself. My education has been significantly enhanced by this. I've also answered thousands of troubleshooting questions via my website, which is why wildfermentation.com, and it's just given me in insights into, um, uh, you know, the, the obstacles people face, the, the fears that they have, the, the, the problems they have, the misinterpretations they have. So I, I just thought it was, it was ready to, 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 it was time to write another book. I have more experience, uh, and I had a lot more to say. Yes, good for um, us. I think Wild Fermentation <laughs> remains an excellent introduction to the topic uh, for people, but I think, um, you know, this new book, The Art of Fermentation, is much more in depth, covers many more different ferments, um, and, you know, has a lot more uh, information on the underlying concepts, uh, some scientific background, things like that. So, and it's a beautiful book. It's it's just visually gorgeous, and it's such an incredible how-to guide. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes. No, it, thank you. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. So here's, here's where I am now in this conversation. I've been listening to all of us talk about this. And I'm really curious, how do you start this process? If I, being a produce guy, if I, if I was going to take a head of cabbage or an ear of corn or something like that, how would we start this process? And can you walk us through the process? Yeah, sure. I can do that really quickly. I mean, because the, the process, fermenting vegetables is definitely the easiest and most straightforward way to uh, begin a fermentation practice. Although, you know, any other food can also be fermented. Vegetables are, in a way, the most straightforward thing to ferment. The, 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 the key conceptual idea to understand is that if vegetables sit on your counter exposed to air, what will happen to them over time is that molds will grow. So so the underlying principle for any vegetable fermentation is to get the vegetable submerged under liquid, which protects it from air exposure, prevents molds, and, and, and instead we see a proliferation of lactic acid bacteria. So what this means with a cabbage is chop it up, create surface area, lightly salt it, 
you can just salt to taste. There's no magic number. You don't need a lot of salt. Just salt it lightly. Then mix up the cabbage and whatever other vegetables you, you mix with it, whatever kinds of seasonings you like. Mix it up well and squeeze it for a couple of minutes in your mixing bowl with your hands. What this does is it bruises the vegetables, it breaks down cell walls, and it, and it helps the cells give up their, um, uh, their, their juices. Um, and that's what we're going to get the vegetables submerged under is their own juices. Then um, just take a jar, any jar you might have sitting in your, in your, in your pantry will, will do, and stuff the vegetables tightly into the jar. Press them down hard to expel any air pockets, and in the process you will force liquid up above them. Um, then you can just leave it in a jar on your kitchen counter. Uh, a, a jar that's mostly full is better than a jar that's, uh, that's got a lot of air space because the air space will promote surface molds. And just leave it on the counter. Um, uh, don't seal the jar too tightly because pressure will build, especially during the first couple of days of fermentation. And then just give it a few days. Um, after, you know, two or three or four days, taste it. Um, you know, you'll find that the flavor has transformed, the texture has transformed, um, and, and it will be dense with lactic acid bacteria. But that is certainly not the full potential. Keep on tasting it at regular intervals every few days, and you'll figure out whether you like it more and more as it gets increasingly sour with the passage of time, or whether you're one of those people who prefers milder flavors of just a brief fermentation. Um, you know, the, the, the great thing about making food for yourself is you can tailor it to your own desires. You can make it extremely sour. Um, I've been eating some almost seven-month-old radish kraut that I have in the cellar. Um, you know, or you can make it really mild after just a couple of days, so, or really anywhere in between. So, Sander, I've got three process. questions. i got three questions from what you just said. So, first, you don't have to add any other liquid to it. No liquid to it. Okay. If you want to ferment whole vegetables or big chunks of vegetables, which makes it uh, 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 less feasible to pull the water out of the vegetables, then you need to add some salt water. That's called brine. But the easiest way to do this is just to create surface area of the, on the vegetables and pull the water out of the vegetables. Okay, by, by uh, massaging them or squeezing them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the, the salt will do it slowly just through osmosis, uh -huh. but, 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 but by bruising the vegetables a little bit, uh, by squeezing or pounding we speed up that process okay and then two is as you're as you put your seasonings in i really like the fact that get people get to play there is that you can you can open this jar up every so many days the air is not going to uh, hurt the fermentation process. No, and in fact, when I do this in a larger uh, in, in a larger vessel, like right now, the, the, the batch that I, that I referred to that's seven months old, that's sitting in a barrel in my cellar. Okay. Not uh, you know not closed off from the air at all. Okay. There's okay. two semicircular pieces of wood on the surface and jugs of water weighing those down and a cloth over the whole thing to keep flies out. Mm -hmm. But I'm not attempting to keep all air out of the system. People oh. have engineered uh, fermentation systems uh, you know that enable you to keep all air out and that that's a way that you can avoid uh, having to deal with uh, scraping away surface molds. Um, but historically, most people have worked in open systems and, uh, and and the process works perfectly well. And then one last thing on that, you said, okay, it starts to get more and more sour. If you find that taste that you like in your process, so you've, you've, it's two or three days or whatever, and you like that taste, is there a way that you can hold that taste? 
Um, sure. I am guessing that most listeners of this program have a fermentation slowing device in their in their kitchen, which is a refrigerator. <laughs> um, and if you just you know, seal that jar and stick it in the fridge, then that will slow down okay, the progression good. to an imperceptible rate, and you can really enjoy your ferment, uh, you know, at the level of acidity that you liked for quite quite some time. Okay. That is so fascinating. The fermentation slowdown device. Yes. Well, I mean, that's what a, a- fermentation. That, that's what a refrigerator. <laughs> microbial and enzymatic processes in our food and that's how it preserves our food so all fun. of the fermentation organisms and the organ and the enzymes that are embedded in all foods that enable them to digest themselves they all go faster when it's warmer great um, Sandra, so we want to correspondence between temperature and how fast these processes go yes and we want to hear what's happening in the body when we consume fermented foods and if there's kind of a golden rule of um, how much fermented foods we can eat or should eat. We'll take another quick break. We're speaking with Sander Katz, the author of The Art of Fermentation, a gentleman who has dedicated his life to bringing this thousands of years old tradition in cultures celebrated around the world um, back to the U.S. kitchen table and um, into the kitchen and into the fridge if you want to stop the flavor where you had it. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Bukehi. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. You're listening to An Organic Conversation, and we'll be right back with more after the break. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And our topic today is the art of fermentation. We're speaking with Sandor Katz, the world-renowned author of The Art of Fermentation and the authority on the topic who's joining us from Tennessee today. Before we dive back into that interview to learn about how to eat fermented foods and Sandor's tips and tricks around how to ferment and, and what his favorite recipes are, uh, here is our very own Sita Rani Palomar, Chef Sita, with her holistic bite. 
Thank you, Helga. Well, My Holistic Bite is a weekly update on the world of well-being, which oftentimes includes holistic nutrition, but it's also including fashion and skincare because true beauty and well-being comes from the outside in as well as from the inside out. And just like you can't eat poor food and expect to look healthy on the outside, you cannot put poor products on your body and expect to feel good on the inside. And often in the world of skincare and even in organic skincare, the ingredient lists include things that I would avoid in my diet, like hydrogenated oils, or they contain items that I know are um, culprits in skin irritation, like sodium lauryl sulfate. So what you do to ensure that your skin gets the same loving attention that you give your diet is read your labels. Get to know the ingredients in your products just as you've gotten to know the ingredients in your food. And every week when I talk about nutrients like lutein and lycopene, uh, carotenes and my favorite of the phytonutrients, anthocyanins, these are hardworking and powerful antioxidants that are found in fresh fruits and vegetables. And they combat oxidative stress in the body, which can lead to premature aging. Those same ingredients can fight the signs of aging on your skin as well as in your body. And vitamins and minerals work on a topical level too, like vitamin A and melons is beneficial for the treatment of acne as well as the tightening of fine lines and wrinkles. And folate and sugar snap peas helps to promote an even skin tone. So look for skincare products that are plant-based with their ingredients and have things like beta-carotene from carrots, zeaxanthin from corn, tocopherols, which is a vitamin E, and retinol, which is a vitamin A. It's not rocket science. Your skincare and your cosmetics should be as nourishing as your food. That is intelligent beauty. And that is your Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. And um, our topic today is eating sugar. We're talking about fermentation, the culture of culturing. With us is Sandra Katz, joining us from Cannon County, Tennessee, the author of The Art of Fermentation and the most renowned authority on the topic. Sander, we talked about the war on bacteria and how critically important bacteria, good bacteria, are. And um, when we kill bacteria, we usually kill all bacteria through antibiotics. But without bacteria, for example, in our gut, we wouldn't survive. uh, Fermented foods can support and and, and, uh, recreate that balance that might be out of balance within our own immune system and within our own body, and you walked us through the process um, of how to ferment, which seemed fairly straightforward and easy, much easier than, for example, brewing beer. Anyone can do it. There's no special um, equipment needed, it sounds like. Um, yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, um, you, can, uh, you can ferment vegetables just using a jar that's already sitting in your kitchen um, and some vegetables. You definitely don't need anything, any, any special equipment. Um, what? You know, I mean, di- different realms of fermentation have definitely, um, um, you know, uh, given rise to much um, uh, specialization and lots of, you know, clever, uh, clever equipment, for instance, for, for something like brewing beer. But really, at their core, any of these processes, including brewing beer, it, you know, there is a simplicity to it. And you don't necessarily need all of the equipment that people have um, you know, developed in order to make the process you know, easier or, or more controlled. Is there something that can go wrong? Like, for example, I think um, reading your book and uh, some commentary around it, you were saying that the, the tap water in many cities or areas in the U.S., um, is not necessarily best suited for fermenting uh, foods. Can you 
what 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 are some of the things that people should look out for? Well, sure. And I mean, one of the great things about fermenting vegetables is you don't have to add any water. There's plenty of water in the vegetables. But sure, I mean, since 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 tap water, um, you know, all over the United States and many other parts of the world is full of chlorine, which is put in the water precisely to kill bacteria. Yes. When we're using water in, in our fermentations, we need to make sure to dechlorinate that water. You can use tap water, but you need to remove the chlorine either through filtration or through evaporation before you use it. What are some other things that people need to watch out for? Is there a batch that can go wrong, like when you smell it and it's just really off? Like how? Um, well, sure, sure. I mean, you, you definitely want to, um, uh, you know, respect your, your sensory evaluation of, of, of these things. Uh, as, as I mentioned, the, the surface of a ferment can, can, get, um, can get pretty moldy. Um, so, so you want to remove that mold and any discoloration that you see. And generally beneath that, um, um, it's, uh, it, 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 it's totally fine. Um, you know, one of the limitations in sort of, you know, just giving, you know, vast you know, general guidance is that, you know, there are so many different realms of fermentation. The consideration in, you know, fermenting milk products is different from uh, the considerations necessary for fermenting vegetables, which mm. are different for, from the considerations uh, um, necessary to, say, make kombucha, which is different from the considerations necessary to ma for making meat. So, you know, one of the reasons why I have written such an in-depth book is because, you know, each of these you know, does have different, um, um, you know, unique um, um, characteristics that yes. need to be taken into account. Yes. And that's something that I think is so great about the book, too, which is the whole um, recurring troubleshooting guide for people. Because as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, the fear around bacteria and how that applies to making your own ferments is so strong in this country. People are always like, oh, is it supposed to look like that? Is it supposed to smell like that? And your troubleshooting guide is really specific about the questions people might have when they're doing a particular recipe or technique that you have in the book. Well, 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 thank you for recognizing that. And, and just to say something about smell, you know, sauerkraut has a small, uh, has, has a strong smell. You know, uh, sometimes people mistake the, you know, strong uh, uh, smell, which is characteristic of, of, of sauerkraut, with something going wrong. Um, so, um, you know, yes, you do want to respect your, uh, your, your senses. And if something just smells like really, really wrong, you don't want to eat it. But, you know, also you don't want to confuse just the intrinsic smell of a strong flavored food with, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, the smell of, um, you know, a, the ferment gone, gone totally wrong. So speaking, you know, speaking just, of, you know, with fermented vegetables, I just like to keep on repeating this idea that there never has been a single case of food poisoning reported from fermented vegetables in the United States. This is really uh, as safe as it gets. Yeah, and the, I actually love that you um, are saying that even if the surface has some mold, if you take, you know, a quarter inch off, the food underneath is completely fine. I have that in jams. People, you know, tend to throw away whole jars of jams, even uh, even though the when you open the lid, it's just in the lid. That means yeah. it, it's not the whole product is contaminated. There's, you know, if you wipe off that mold and maybe one scrape more, you're fine. There's no, I never had a problem with that. Um, it, can you talk about how is it used? How how do you eat fermented foods? Are we talking real meals every day, several times a day, or 
more um, more medicinal um, approach to using fermented foods. What's your recommendation for somebody who's new to this? Does the body need to get accustomed to it? Uh, yes. I mean, I would definitely say for people who are introducing live culture foods into their diet for the first time, um, you know, do it gradually. In most cultures, these foods are used as condiments. People don't eat a huge mound of sauerkraut or kimchi. They might eat it at every meal, but they're eating relatively small portions of it as accents um, um, on their food rather than as the central portion of their food. Um, and, and yes, especially if you are um, incorporating these foods into your diet for the first time, just do it gradually. There, there, there's, there's, no, there's no specific benefit to eating huge amounts of these bacterially rich foods. Um, you know, really, the, the, the greater benefit is from eating them um, uh, with some frequency, eating them regularly. Yeah. I like to eat some live culture fermented foods every day. And I don't necessarily eat them at every single meal. Sure, and you know how, you know, uh, we often are here in America, if we hear something really great like this show, some people might go out and start eating fermented foods. Yeah, like bowls of it at a time. <laughs> from nine to nine every day in vast amounts. So yes. But, but if one, one thing I will add though <laughs> is that there is a benefit to eating a variety of different types of fermenting food, yes. fermented food. So not just eating yogurt every day. Yes. You know, eat some yogurt. As with anything. Eat some sauerkraut. Drink yes. some kombucha. Beer. You no know, one of these foods is the answer. Um, you know, part of the benefit of them is in the diversity that they can provide. So, you know, this hour has just flown by. Uh, <laughs> I could as, talk about this so yeah, much and, longer. <laughs> and Sita could keep this conversation going for a long time. So uh, what, um, what need is fer fermentation education filling in for society today? I mean, more and more people are hearing the word probiotic and, and all these different things. And so how can this continue to grow, do you think? Well, I mean, as I said earlier, because of all of the chemicals that we're exposed to on an almost daily basis, uh, you know, it has become more important for people in our time than for people ever before to, you know, consciously be replenishing um, uh, the bacteria in our guts by consuming these kinds of foods. Um, so, so, so I think that there is, you know, kind of a historical urgency to it because of, um, um, you know, just, just because of in factors of, of the chemicals that, uh, that we're being exposed to. Um, you know, also, I, and beyond fermentation, I would say there's an urgency for, you know, people to, um, uh, you know, become closer to the sources of their food. And one very tangible way that people can do that is by beginning to have a little bit of a relationship with microorganisms, um, by, by cultivating them in any one of these, uh, you know, different kinds of fermented foods, you know, all of which can be made um, at home in your kitchen. Yes, thank you. Sander, thank you for bringing this topic up. Thank you for guiding people through their fear when it comes to fermentation and for reconnecting this society back to this thousands of year old food tradition that has brought us some wonderful things like German sauerkraut <laughs> um, and, and beer and kombucha and yogurt. And um, we didn't even get to talk about the non-food item like silage when you ferment hay for animals to uptake. But we'll do that in another show. Thank you again, Sandor Katz, the author of The Art of Fermentation, for joining us today. Wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for inspiring so many. <laughs> and if you want to learn more from Sandor, go to wildfermentation.com. That's 
Sandor's website, wildfermentation.com. Yeah, that that is so fascinating. I, I, I have to say that in one hour, I feel so much more comfortable with the idea of fermenting some food. I can't wait to go brew some cabbage and, uh, <laughs> and just kind of get my hands in the process and, and do that taste test of, mm-hmm. of each day going through and or each every several days and see and getting it to that process where I really love it. So I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home and try some. And which variety of cabbage will create what kind of flavor with mm-hmm. it? Right. It's mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we can't wait to taste that. What you will bring, Mark. <laughs> I love to see that you know what is in part a necessity in cultures thousands of years ago to preserve foods into the winter and into the seasons when those foods were not around has such a multitude of benefits associated to it. It's like there's so much incredible wisdom that is addressed through these practices. Really fascinating, beautiful. Yeah, that reinforces something that I think informs a lot of my decisions about food and health, which is that ancient wisdom from from cultures that have thrived for thousands of years can really be a guiding principle and inform the things that we do today because that is what allowed them to survive and thrive yes, so long. Yes, and, and we, you know, we see over and over what what a society goes through when they ignore those mm-hmm. uh, practices and wisdoms and, and cultures, the culture of culturing. But yeah, beautiful. Great show. Sandra is the man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's awesome. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. If you miss parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash Conversation. We're your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye. Conversation is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1980.